Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers and industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of drugs and abuse that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. It was late when Darlene and Glenn Summerford arrived home on October 4th, 1991. Glenn immediately went to pour himself a glass of vodka. He put down the pistol in his hand and grabbed the bottle. As soon as he finished his drink, he yelled at Darlene. He accused her of cheating on him. When she denied it, he called her names and recited a Bible verse from Leviticus. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be put to death. Summerford grabbed Darlene by the hair and held the gun to her temple. He offered her a choice. She could die right there, or she could come with him out to the shed. He claimed he wanted to put her faithfulness to the test. He dragged her outside to the shed and opened up a terrarium full of rattlesnakes they kept inside. With the gun to Darlene's head, Summerford demanded she stick her hand in the container. If she were righteous, he claimed, she wouldn't be bitten. Left with no choice, Darlene took a deep breath and held out her hand. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults, a ParCast original. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. Today, we're taking a deep dive into the Church of God with signs following. A Christian church founded by Glenn Summerford in 1980 that confronted demons and embraced the Holy Spirit by handling poisonous snakes. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. 
You can listen to previous episodes of Cults, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. Last week, we followed Summerford's nomadic upbringing and amateur boxing career. After almost killing a man, a prison stint, and a few near-death experiences of his own, Summerford heard the voice of God and began studying the Bible. Summerford interpreted the Bible literally and found spiritual transcendence by handling serpents. In 1980, at the age of 35, he began preaching at the Mink Creek Holiness Church in Scottsboro, Alabama. It was burned down the same year after he began integrating black church members into his services. This week, we'll take a look at the church Summerford founded after Mink Creek burnt down. We'll examine his followers and how the small rural community was unraveled when the beloved pastor committed a heinous crime. In 1980, Summerford's congregation moved from the charred remains of the Mink Creek Holiness Church to a small temporary building on some land the church bought. Summerford had only recently inherited the congregation after the previous pastor, Carl Hayswell, died. Though he had trained under Hayeswell's wing, this was his first real experience leading a church all on his own. In the spirit of new beginnings, he dubbed the building the Church of God with Signs Following, after a verse in the Gospel of Mark. Summerford had a vision from God that this new church would be the biggest the rural Alabama community had ever seen. He claimed God had singled out this flock to spread God's word wider than ever before, he began construction on a new, larger church next to the temporary building. The bulk of his previous congregation followed Summerford to his new church, but some had reservations. They were unsure whether the newly minted pastor was the right man for the job. They didn't wonder for long. After months of experimenting with snake handling privately with his wife, Summerford started bringing captive poisonous snakes to his sermons— during passionate diatribes, he stunned his audiences by taking up the serpents and declaring that those who had faith in God should do the same. The impressive spectacle of the snake handling and his charismatic salt-of-the-earth sermons won many new converts. Summerford was open about his poor rural upbringing and his past struggles with the law, including his prison sentences for assault and burglary. His story of redemption gave his words an air of credibility that won over many. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Dr. Stephen Joseph, an author and psychologist, wrote that what people look for in a leader is authenticity shown by expressing oneself freely, accepting others, and understanding one's motivations. According to Dr. Joseph, authenticity is highly valued. On the whole, we don't like or trust people who come across as phony and false. But it wasn't just Summerford's displays of honest redemption which caused his congregation to grow. The spectacular elements of his sermons drew people in. The churchgoers were used to the displays put on by faith healers and members who changed and spoke in tongues when they felt the Holy Ghost. But before Summerford took over, the church had never practiced snake handling. At first, some churchgoers were frightened by the turn the services took. But eventually, many felt a connection to the Lord when they got the courage to take up serpents of their own. 
They reported feeling the power of the Holy Spirit coursing through them and a strange peace despite being so close to danger. A key part of Summerford's demonstration was his own ability to avoid being bitten. After handling the snakes every night for months with Darlene, Summerford knew the signs of an agitated snake, as well as the right places to grab the serpents. These were important precautions because all of the snakes were poisonous. And due to Summerford's absolute faith in God, the church did not stock itself with anti-venom, only basic first aid. In addition, the snakes themselves had become familiar with Summerford. According to Dr. Sharman Hoppies, a veterinarian, pet snakes, like cats and dogs, can recognize their owners or anyone who handles them frequently. He said, quote, some reptiles do appear to enjoy human contact, especially when food is offered. Many will come to people they associate with food. This familiarity helped Summerford when he handled the serpents in front of a crowd. The surprising way the snakes kept calm in his hands shocked his audiences and convinced them God was protecting their pastor. Summerford didn't stop at snakes either. As his favorite Bible verse, Mark 16, 17 to 18 said, And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name shall they cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. In accordance with the verse, Summerford claimed to have drunk strychnine as well, a highly toxic chemical used to kill small pests like birds and mice. In small doses, the chemical can have a stimulating effect, like a heavy dose of caffeine. In the late 1800s, it was believed to be an athletic performance enhancer and was treated similarly to coffee, despite the fact that it causes convulsions. In higher doses or after extended use, the convulsions lead to asphyxiation and death. Summerford claimed he drank strychnine in church on several occasions, sometimes shaking and convulsing on the floor, but never dying thanks to the power of the Holy Spirit. According to Summerford, if you do it, the Lord said, then he'd take care of you so wouldn't nothing hurt you. Anybody better think about it before he goes to turn that up and drink it. They definitely better know they're ready to go to heaven. Apparently, Summerford was ready. He even claimed to have drunk battery acid one night after a churchgoer brought it to him. Despite the Lord's protection, Summerford did have some close calls after drinking poison. After one strychnine experience, he came home from church with a numb foot. He fell asleep on the couch and woke up a few hours later. His tongue was swollen and he was bleeding in between his teeth. This was probably due to muscle spasms, one of the first signs of strychnine poisoning. He tried to call for his wife, but convulsed and was forced into a fetal position. His arms and legs locked up. With his vision blurring, Summerford stopped calling for Darlene and started praying. According to him, his limbs slowly relaxed as he reached out to God. Eventually, he stood and started walking. He prayed and walked around his home without stopping all night long. By the morning, he was healed completely. He said it taught him to rely on Jesus first and foremost, ahead of his wife. After the strychnine incident, Summerford's first priority was proving to God he had learned his lesson. He threw himself into preaching. 
He held nearly nightly services in the small building, and word gradually spread around town about his explosive sermons. By 1981, the size of his church had doubled from around 25 regular attendees to 50. Summerford didn't stop drinking poisonous liquids and even continued to drink strychnine on occasion. But while he was zealous, he also knew when to take it slow. For example, he converted J.L. Dial to the church, a man known around town as a belligerent drunk with persistent non-confrontational invitations. Dial's wife, Dorothy, started coming to the Summerford's church after a recommendation from a friend. But her husband wasn't interested. To show his disdain, he drove Dorothy to the church and sat in the parking lot during the service, brazenly refusing to come inside. Summerford hardly commented. Even as this went on for weeks, every night he saw J.L., Summerford only asked him once if he wanted to come in. After several weeks, J.L. began parking the car close to the church door where he could hear the sermon from outside. A few weeks after that, J.L. came in to sit in the back pew. Finally, after months, he was sitting up front with his wife and had turned his life around. According to Dorothy, quote, Honestly, you couldn't have gotten no meaner than J.L. was before he converted and he started living right under Brother Glenn. And my husband ain't touched a drop of drink in almost 12 years. Such was the power of Summerford's charisma. And as Dr. Raj Persaud and Dr. Peter Bruggen point out, his patience with non-believers is similar to that of America's most well-known Christian proselytizer, Billy Graham. They wrote, Complete faith is the rock from which Billy Graham fashioned a unique philosophy. Graham says, It would seem to me that the Christian must always manifest the greatest patience and understanding. Both Graham and Summerford shared unshakable confidence that God would come to those in need in his own time. They believed the best policy for conversion was to gently and persistently show people that belief was a personal decision. J.L. and many of Summerford's other followers appreciated the freedom of belief he offered them. People came to Summerford's services for the spectacle of snake handling and faith healing, but they stayed after the novelty wore off because they believed in their preacher. Thanks to Brother Summerford's conviction and willingness to uplift the people of the community, his church continued to grow at a rapid pace for the first several years of his tenure. Coming up, Summerford's followers begin to reorient their lives around the church encouraged by his tireless efforts to expand his ministry. Now, back to the story. In 1980, 35-year-old Glenn Summerford founded the Church of God with signs following after assuming the pastorship of the Mink Creek Holiness Church in Scottsboro, Alabama. He quickly attracted congregants to his services with spectacles like snake handling and drinking poison, When he was protected, everyone's faith in God was affirmed. By the mid-1980s, the small church held packed services five nights a week. Worship dominated his followers' lives. Acid rock, accompanied by jangling tambourines, exploded out of old speakers while people poured in and out. To be considered a pious member, people were expected to attend at least three times per week, and most people did. During the service, shouting and dancing were encouraged. Congregants rarely stayed seated for long, and sometimes tried to outdo each other with their exhalations and shouts of affirmation. 
Snakes were taken up often, though not during every service. It was up to Summerford whether he felt the call of the Lord that night to handle a serpent. His congregants believed that earthly demons took the form of poisonous snakes and that God called upon the faithful to take up the serpents. To take up a snake without fear was the hallmark of a godly Christian person. Both men and women were encouraged to handle the snakes when the Holy Ghost compelled them to do so. When someone was bitten, as happened occasionally, Summerford's followers believed it was because the victim was not moving in the way God asked them to at that moment. Thus, a truly righteous person could never be bitten if they listened to God. Sometimes a bite was considered the result of a transient mistake. Other times, the follower was ostracized for being an unfaithful Christian, depending on the congregation's view of the person. In light of this, followers who were bitten often eschewed medical treatment, believing that faith in God would see them through the pain. Because not all serpent bites are accompanied by venom, and because bites from rattlesnakes and copperheads are not always fatal, no one died while Summerford preached. In general, the church had strict safety precautions about storing and handling the snakes, and so followers were rarely bitten. No one under 18 was allowed to handle a serpent, but many of the younger attendees went out with their families to help trap and bring in new snakes. They looked forward to the day when they would be old enough to feel the power of God and take up snakes like their parents. The snakes themselves, acting as conduits to God, were admired like saints by church members. Several of them kept photos of their favorite snakes in their purses and wallets as a kind of prayer totem. They were completely devoted to their snakes and their church. Though many struggled to make ends meet, they gave whatever they could to keep the church going. They supported Summerford in his efforts to expand the ministry and improve the church. He often made special trips to individual members to ask them for money personally, and they were happy to oblige. By 1987, as a result of his efforts, the Church of God with signs following boasted close to a hundred congregants. The bulk of converts were similarly downtrodden, isolated rural Americans. Some felt left behind by society at large, and many had never ventured far from their small town. Summerford charmed these people and praised them. He called them chosen by God as the few people worthy of entering paradise. He made many of them feel a sense of belonging they had lacked before coming to his church. According to Dr. Mariana Pagosian, a lecturer in cultural psychology, charisma like Summerford's isn't just natural. It can be learned and refined with practice. This could explain how Summerford gained followers faster as time went on. After starting with a small church, he spent his first few years preaching and honing his style. As he got more comfortable in front of a crowd, he was better able to feed off the audience's reaction. After seven years of nonstop proselytizing, he had quadrupled church membership, and his followers numbered in the triple digits. Cars filled the parking lot outside the temporary building almost every night. Dr. Pagosian wrote that a person must communicate their ideas in a way that will help them understand his message by fertilizing their speech with metaphors, stories, and images, and by delivering it with the right voice and gestures, speakers can exude effortless charm in the eyes of their audience. The testimonials of several of his followers, such as Dorothy Dial, 
mentioned Summerford's unique ability to get everyone in the crowd to be an active participant. Dorothy said, When he walked in that door and raised his hands and said, Praise God, and started walking in the aisles with his hands up, you knew the anointing of God moved in there. And there was no denying. There was no denying it. While Summerford was passionate about his activities with the church, he and Darlene lived happily together. Darlene truly believed her husband was saved by Jesus. She believed God spoke to her husband and that the Holy Spirit worked through him. But eventually, Glenn Summerford's plans started to crumble. He had attracted more than 150 new converts to his church in the decade after he began preaching in 1980. But it wasn't enough to finance his dream of a gigantic cathedral. In 1990, 45-year-old Summerford reached a turning point. He was disappointed that his church had not grown as fast as he'd expected. While he had never fully quit drinking, up until 1990, he cut down on his alcohol consumption considerably. Now, he started drinking heavily and withdrew into himself. Darlene noticed the change in his attitude and did not like the long evenings he spent alone in the shed, praying, drinking, and tending to the serpents. He stopped consulting her on spiritual matters and became abusive. Summerford's slump caused Darlene to fall into her own depression. By now, all aspects of the couple's lives were linked to the church. They went to church five days a week to have service, only taking a rest on Monday and Tuesday. Once Summerford started drinking and bullying her, Darlene felt constrained by a life that revolved around the church and ultimately Summerford. Slowly, she felt the walls closing in. By 1991, when Glenn was 46 and Darlene was 36, he regularly beat her. When he was drunk, Summerford invented excuses to take out his aggression on his wife, pretending to catch her in lies or accusing her of hiding things from him. He even beat her in front of their 14-year-old son, Marty, who had to physically pull his father off of Darlene on several occasions. One night in September of 1991, after one of his drunken rampages, Summerford had a terrifying nightmare. He woke up screaming Darlene's name, but couldn't remember the dream. The fact that he called out to Darlene particularly disturbed him, as he had never woken up screaming before. Summerford wondered whether he'd called out to his wife for help or for something else. The intensity of the terror he'd felt upon waking made him feel God was trying to tell him something he couldn't quite remember. After a week of prayer and fasting, he asked God why he had screamed Darlene's name. He heard the Lord's voice saying, You're not strong enough yet. Strong enough for what? Summerford's heart sank when he looked at his wife sleeping beside him. He started to get paranoid and distracted during his sermons. He suddenly felt like everyone at church was gossiping about him. Finally, about a month after the nightmare, Summerford heard the Lord again while praying outside his home. God told him, Your bed has been defiled. Summerford instantly knew what that meant. On September 30th, 1991, a Sunday night, Summerford questioned other ministers and close friends in the church. After some prodding, they confessed that there were rumors going around about Darlene. Several people in the church had heard that she was having an affair with another preacher, Gene Sherbert. Brother Gene was a preacher at a snake-handling church in Kingston, a few hours from Scottsboro. 
He was slightly younger than Summerford and visited the Scottsboro Church sometimes to give guest sermons. Summerford was furious. He hardly looked at Darlene during the service. He thought hard about what he was going to do next. To him, his recent lack of fulfillment now made perfect sense. Darlene used to be his partner. She was one of the best-known female snake handlers in Alabama. But since church growth had slowed and Summerford abandoned his dreams of a megachurch, he felt she had forsaken her chief duty, supporting him. The more he thought about it, the more Summerford blamed Darlene for his problems. Psychologist Leon Seltzer wrote, If you're the cheated-upon party, blaming them protects you from blaming yourself. Feeling that maybe you actually deserved their fidelity, that somehow you weren't lovable enough to keep them from straying. The anger provided a defense for Summerford's wounded pride. It also allowed him to explain away his problems with fulfillment and his recent drinking. He believed that Darlene was cheating on him, despite a lack of evidence, because God told him so, and also because it provided an outlet for his anger. Summerford was sure he had spoken to God because the validation he got from his followers convinced him he was a conduit of the divine. This made it impossible for him to doubt the instincts which had bothered him since he woke from the nightmare. In short, Summerford's conviction in his connection to God by extension made him believe his intuition was infallible. Summerford's belief in his own instincts reflects a common cognitive bias. According to psychologist Dr. Mariana Pagosian, an excessive faith in ourselves and our judgment means that we too often ignore our vulnerability to bias and error. Pagosian lists the ways our overconfidence creates biases, including availability, framing, and egocentrism. Summerford was definitely a victim of egocentrism. He led almost every church service and insisted on being the authority in both his home and work. His worldview centered on himself as a tool of God, essentially making all of his actions the result of divine will. That was how he summoned the confidence to drink poison and handle serpents, but it also made him incredibly close-minded. The night after Summerford was told about Darlene's alleged infidelity, Monday, October 1st, he stayed up late praying and drinking. He plotted revenge against Darlene and tended to the snakes he kept in his outdoor shed. By now, he had over a dozen, including cottonmouth and rattlesnakes. When he came to the bedroom around midnight, Darlene was still awake. She regularly had insomnia and took over-the-counter sleeping pills. When Summerford walked in, she was taking her fourth one that night. Seeing the number of pills missing from the package, Summerford seized his chance. He wanted to lay the groundwork for his revenge, as well as take out his pent-up aggression on Darlene. His first step was to act shocked at the sight of the sleeping pills. He angrily asked Darlene what she was doing and how many pills she had taken. When she told him four, he accused her of trying to commit suicide. To Darlene, this behavior was completely out of the blue. She tried to tell Summerford she was only trying to sleep, but there was no reasoning with him. He called their son, Marty, now 15 years old, into the bedroom. He told Marty that Darlene was crazy and accused her of trying to overdose on sleeping pills in front of their son. To Darlene, none of this made sense. 
but the spectacle was part of Summerford's plan. As an experienced showman at the pulpit, he knew he had to first lay a foundation for what was to come and establish that Darlene was suicidal. Summerford successfully bullied Darlene into vomiting up the sleeping pills in the toilet. After she vomited, the argument died down and she tried to get some sleep, but less than an hour later at 1 a.m., she was awoken by the phone ringing. When she went to the living room to answer it, she saw Summerford already holding the phone. He hung up when she entered the room. He told her Jean Sherbert had called and confessed that he and Darlene had slept together. Darlene knew that was a lie. She didn't know who had just called the house, but Glenn's mother often called late at night to chat with Darlene, and she had a feeling that was who Glenn had been talking to. She told Glenn that she hadn't slept with Jean, and there was no way he would call to tell a lie like that. Without responding, Glenn grabbed Darlene by the hair, and started beating her. Coming up, Marty Summerford must take on his father to protect Darlene. Now, the conclusion of our story. On October 2nd, 1991, 46-year-old preacher Glenn Summerford attacked his 36-year-old wife, Darlene Summerford, after accusing her of cheating on him. Their 15-year-old son, Marty, entered the bedroom and saw what was happening. The boy grabbed onto Summerford's leg and attempted to pull him off. Summerford didn't come quietly, but eventually backed off and slept in a separate room that night. The next day, October 3rd, Summerford continued to verbally harass Darlene about cheating on him. Desperate to get out of the house, she volunteered to go borrow some money from J.L. Dial, the man who changed his life after hearing Summerford preach. Summerford had been putting off the uncomfortable errand for several days, so he agreed to let Darlene go. But because he didn't trust her to go out alone, he made her take Marty along. The two drove to JL's office in Huntsville, Alabama. JL owned a small business there and was well off. According to Darlene, Summerford had borrowed money from JL before. This time, he gave the family a couple hundred dollars. But before they left, after Marty left the room to get a Coke, JL dropped a bomb. He told Darlene he had been trying to get her alone for weeks and out of the blue, confessed his love for her. Before she could respond, JL kissed her. He stopped when Marty re-entered the room. Aware that Summerford was already paranoid and not wanting him to find out about the kiss some other way, Darlene told him what happened when she got home. He exploded, cursing her out and threatening to fight J.L. The next day, Thursday, Summerford went to get revenge. He made Darlene come along to prove she wasn't in love with J.L. The three met in the parking lot at J.L.'s office. At her husband's direction, Darlene distracted J.L. by asking him to look under the hood of the car. When he turned his back, Summerford hit him with the car's timing chain, a heavy track and gear like a bike chain. J.L. stumbled and backed away, but didn't go down. Summerford wanted an apology and a fight, but J.L. denied he had kissed Darlene. Summerford left when J.L. threatened to call the police after a heated shouting match. That night, Darlene and Summerford again slept in separate rooms. The next morning, he woke Darlene up by screaming in her face. He was already drunk. 
After some arguing, he threatened to shoot her right there. Summerford went to the closet to grab his shotgun while Darlene ran out of the house. She sprinted outside and all the way up a hill in the front yard before she dared to turn around. Marty was at the front door, aiming a hunting bow and arrow at Summerford. Summerford looked at his son and slowly put his shotgun on the ground. After a few tense moments, Marty put down the bow and began weeping. Summerford comforted the boy and convinced Darlene to come back into the house. Darlene called Summerford's eldest daughter, Jackie, to come and pick up Marty. She feared he would be in danger if he stayed any longer. After Jackie took Marty back to her home, Summerford called J.L. and told him to meet him for a fight by an old oak tree in the town of New Hope. In his mind, a brawl was the only fair way to settle their disagreement. He told Darlene to stay at home, but she refused, not wanting Summerford to lie about what happened there. Summerford brought his pistol but left it in his car and stood next to the tree for half an hour. His two sons from his previous marriage, Junior and Bill, both in their mid-twenties, came to stop him. They tried to calm Summerford down, but he wasn't listening. Junior and Bill left in frustration. Summerford drove home drunk down the dark, winding Alabama roads with Darlene in the passenger seat. Next, knowing Darlene couldn't swim, he threatened to take Darlene to a nearby bridge, which crossed over a river, and throw her in. He claimed he would tell everybody she ran off with another man and get away with it. Still drinking while he drove, Summerford suddenly changed his mind and told Darlene to forget all about it. They finally arrived home at 9 p.m. For some reason, Darlene didn't understand. Summerford parked the car away from the house, down a small adjoining road where it couldn't be seen from the street. She was annoyed at having to walk further, but chalked it up to Summerford's drunken incoherence. Once they got back inside, Summerford immediately started berating her once again. He set the pistol down on the coffee table. Summerford followed Darlene around the house and wouldn't let her leave. He told her, I don't want to live with you no more, but I don't want nobody else to have you. As Summerford was threatening Darlene, he got a call from a family member asking if everything was all right. Summerford insisted everything was fine and said he would pray and calm himself down. Darlene tried to grab the phone from Summerford, but he wouldn't let her. After he hung up, he stumbled to the living room and grabbed the pistol. He held it to Darlene's temple and told her to keep quiet. Summerford dragged Darlene out into the Alabama night to their shed. He flipped on the light, revealing stacked terrariums filled with poisonous serpents. He pushed Darlene toward a container filled with rattlesnakes. He tapped the glass with his elbow until the snakes hissed angrily. Summerford told Darlene to open the terrarium because he didn't want to leave behind fingerprints. She begged him to stop, but he only cocked the pistol in response. If she were telling the truth about not running around on him, he said, then she had nothing to fear. The snakes wouldn't bite a righteous woman. Darlene opened the container. She tried to steady her violently shaking hands. The snakes bobbed and rattled. Blinking away her tears, Darlene reached inside. 
She was immediately bitten by one of the rattlesnakes on her thumb. She jerked her hand back and grasped her wrist. Summerford watched her shake and hold onto her thumb for a while, expressionless. But the horror wasn't over yet. He went to another box that contained two large rattlesnakes and told her to pick up the biggest one. He said he would let her live if she could handle it without being bitten. Darlene prayed until Summerford got impatient and demanded she pick up the snake. With the gun to her head, she grabbed the snake and held it up for a few seconds. It remained still. She put it back, relieved. Summerford scoffed, but he said he would let her live. He made her follow him, in the dark, down to the little road where the car was parked. He worried a family member or neighbor was going to come by looking for them. He had no intention of letting Darlene get away, now that she had been bitten. Darlene could already feel the poison coursing through her. She had been bitten before, but it hadn't hurt this bad. The pain was unbearable. She was dying for a glass of water, but Summerford made her wait an hour by the car without helping her. Finally, they started walking back to the house. Darlene made it halfway before collapsing to the ground. Her legs were locked and she couldn't get up, but she was conscious. Her symptoms made it clear the bite she received had contained venom. According to a report in the National Center for Biotechnology Information, around 20% of bites are non-venomous and thus do not result in muscle spasms or nausea. But depending on the size of the person, it takes as little as 5 milligrams of venom to be fatal, and some rattlesnakes can release as much as 25 milligrams per bite. Darlene knew that while she was not in danger of dying yet, every hour that passed made her more vulnerable. According to a rattlesnake protection site, most deaths from rattlesnake bites take place between 6 and 48 hours after the bite. Summerford watched her try and fail to move. He laughed and put the gun in his waistband. While she was frozen stiff, he urinated on her face. Between giggles, he sneered, that will revive you. After a few minutes, the spasms passed and Darlene regained enough strength to make it back to the house. She fell into a chair on the porch, again too weak to stand. Summerford left her on the porch and went inside. Darlene passed out. The next morning, she woke up late. The light danced around the edges of her vision. Everything seemed dreamlike. Summerford stood over her and bent to examine her. Her hand was already swollen twice its size, and it was beginning to blacken around the edges of the bite. She was dying for a drink of water. Summerford asked her if she could stand. Groggily, she did her best to answer him. She asked Summerford what he was going to do now. He told her he was going to the store, and she had to come with him. After she drank water, she was able to walk despite the pain. Summerford parked in front of the grocery store next to a video rental place. He told Darlene to go return some videotapes while he went to the store. He promised to take her to the hospital afterward. Because he seemed much calmer than the night before and hadn't cursed her during the car ride over, she believed him. For Darlene, though the snake bite had been an escalation, Summerford's behavior still fit within his established pattern of abuse. 
According to her, most of the time when we'd been into it, he would apologize and be good to me for a couple of days. Summerford's behavior is common among abusers. Family therapist Darlene Lancer wrote that the cycle of violence consists of four phases, a buildup of tension, the attack, remorse and apology, and a honeymoon period of loving gestures. Since she had survived the night, Darlene thought she was through the worst of it. She thought Summerford would apologize soon and the honeymoon period would begin. She was also afraid to upset Summerford again by acting rashly. As Lancer described, sometimes the threat of violence is all the abuser needs to control you. Shame about the abuse and the dysfunctional nature of the relationship lowers the victim's self-esteem and confidence. Of course, all of these feelings were amplified and muddled by the snake venom coursing through Darlene's body. She returned the videotapes like Summerford asked, and then he drove to the liquor store and bought a fifth of vodka. Darlene begged him to take her to the hospital, but he refused. Around noon, they arrived back home. Darlene was in such pain, all she could do was lay on the couch for the rest of the day while Summerford continued to drink. By dinnertime, it had been almost 24 hours since Darlene had been bitten. Darlene knew from experience her pain was on the verge of worsening. If the bite remained untreated, soon it would lead to hemorrhaging and heart failure. At 5 p.m. on Saturday, October 5th, Summerford drunkenly approached Darlene while she laid on the couch. He examined her wound and her increasingly pale face. He told her confidently that she would be dead within the hour. He told Darlene if she wrote two letters exactly as he dictated them, then he would take her to the hospital. Though she was delirious, she knew he was lying. When she refused, he pulled out the gun again and forced her to the kitchen table. Summerford put a pen and paper in front of her. By now, Darlene's focus was almost entirely gone. She could barely understand what he was telling her, but eventually she nodded in reply. Summerford began, Dear Marty, I love you. Do what Daddy says. Daddy was asleep. I tried to fix everything, but it didn't work out. Darlene's writing was nearly illegible, but he continued, I went out and got snake bit. Glenn is asleep, and I don't want no help. Finally, it dawned on Darlene. He was making her write a suicide note. She put down the pen and, slurring her words, begged again to go to the hospital. She told Summerford he would go to jail and rot in hell for what he was doing. Summerford stumbled away to grab another drink. He was so drunk that he was almost as delirious as she. In his mind, he had nearly won. After more threats, he managed to make Darlene finish the note and write another one to her sister. In that letter, he made her write that she had slept with her sister's husband and Summerford's half-brother, David Mance. To Summerford, his plan was foolproof. Once Darlene died of the bites, he would simply show the notes to the authorities and get off scot-free. Who would investigate a beloved local preacher who had just lost his wife? Contrary to Summerford's prediction, Darlene didn't die at 6 p.m. By 7, he was frustrated. He kept drinking and left the living room so he wouldn't hear Darlene moan in pain. By 7.30, he was determined to end it. 
He made Darlene get off the couch and took her back to the shed to finish what he started. Summerford went straight to the large rattler Darlene had successfully picked up the night before. He made her open the container. Then he grabbed a small pipe and started striking the snake to make it angry. Needless to say, the snake was enraged. It repeatedly struck at the sides of the container and shook its rattle. After it was sufficiently agitated, Summerford commanded Darlene to stick her hands inside the container again. Darlene wept. She was delirious with thirst and pain and could barely stand on her own. Summerford grabbed her by the hair and threatened to stick her face into the container if she didn't reach in with her hand. Darlene couldn't stop her hand from trembling. Summerford made her lead with her left hand, the one that had already been bitten. As soon as she got within range of the snake, it struck at her, biting her on the back of her left hand. Darlene got sick almost immediately. She fell to the ground and vomited outside the shed. By the time Summerford dragged her back inside, her whole body was tingling. Her insides burned and she couldn't control her muscles. She was on the verge of death. Curled up on the couch, all she could do was pray. Her stomach was in agony. She had to hold her left hand up using her right to prevent it from touching anything because it was so sensitive. Summerford cursed her while she slipped in and out of consciousness. He refused to take her to the bathroom and told her to go on the floor, which she did. Flushed from his triumph and the liquor, Summerford sat down in a chair, listening to his wife cry and pray. He told Darlene he would shoot her if she moved, placed his gun under his pillow, leaned back in the chair, and passed out. Darlene was shaken from her prayers by the sound of his snoring. Her first thought was for water. Her mouth and throat ached. She summoned all her strength, stood up, and tiptoed to the kitchen. Darlene drank a glass of water and managed to focus long enough to call her sister on the phone, who told her to run outside while she called an ambulance. Darlene didn't need to be told twice. She went out the back door. Even the dim streetlights stung her eyes. But by covering her face and peeking through her fingers, she got her bearings. She stumbled toward the road in front of her house. As she staggered down the middle of the street, Darlene continued to pray to maintain her focus. Her blackened hand was now the size of a grapefruit, sensitive and raw. Only her faith kept her going. After a few minutes, she heard the ambulance. She was saved. Darlene was in the hospital for four days. Doctors had to excise the top part of her thumb because the venom had killed so many skin cells, but otherwise she managed to recover. When police arrived at Summerford's, he didn't put up a fight. He acted as if he'd been asleep the whole time and had no idea she'd been bitten by a snake. He was arrested and charged with attempted murder. The unusual nature of the case brought nationwide publicity and caused havoc in the small town. Many members felt the church was misrepresented in the sensational headlines. At the trial, Summerford pled not guilty. He claimed that Darlene was bitten while trying to coax a snake into attacking him. Almost all of his followers believed their dear leader's side of the story. They'd heard rumors of Darlene's infidelity. If Darlene was bit, even if it was at Summerford's behest, 
she deserved it. A blameless woman with faith in God would never be bitten by a serpent. On February 12, 1992, Glenn Summerford was found guilty. He was sentenced to 99 years in prison. Darlene said she felt justice had been done and thanked the Lord they convicted him. His followers were stunned. One churchgoer, known as Aunt Daisy the Prophetess, predicted that God would open the ground underneath the wicked people who jailed their leader, free Summerford from prison, and return him to his rightful place at the pulpit. While they waited for God to stage a jailbreak, the senior ministers at his church kept services going. Dennis Covington, an investigative reporter, went to Scottsboro to cover Summerford's trial. Seeing how fervent his supporters were, he started attending the Church of God with signs following to see what services were like. He ended up spending two years with the church, eventually taking up snake handling himself. He later published a nonfiction novel about his experience called Salvation on Sand Mountain. Though the church did eventually disband, Covington's experience showed an interesting truth about Summerford's thrall. His followers had felt like he alone provided this connection to God. But in truth, the snakes did all the work. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. We'll be back with another episode next Tuesday. For more information on Church of God with Signs Following, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Serpent and the Spirit by Thomas Burton and Salvation on Sand Mountain by Dennis Covington, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Cults, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Cults was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by David Turk, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Cults was written by Terrell Wells and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 